The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. This morning we're going to be looking at the subject of marriage and what the Bible has to say about marriage. We come into this context or this, this book and we look at the context, which is Solomon, King Solomon, um, considered the wisest person that ever lived, or at least is on record in the Bible. And he is writing this book to his son, giving godly advice or wisdom that he wants his son to live by. Um, that's kind of where we come into this. Now, when I was talking to Brian about uh, preaching, I saw kind of the list of, of um, topics, if you will, that we were going to be preaching through. I saw marriage, and my first thought was, man, I bet Larry or maybe Mark, one of the other elders, would preach on this. I think those guys have been married like 45 years, probably back when rings were square, I think. Um, but I, I picked the date, not the topic. And so when it came to me on marriage, I was like, I've been married 15 years. My wife and I have been married 15 years, and that's the youngest of all of our elders by about five years. So um, I felt inadequate at first when I looked at this topic just to speak on this. Um, but thankfully for you and for me, this has nothing to do with my experience in my marriage. <laughs> um, because if it was, I probably would shut this right down right now and you guys could go to lunch um, and I would save you some, uh, some of the trouble. But this has to do with God's words for his people um, about marriage, and it really has nothing to do with me. So I'm, I'm, I'm privileged and I'm glad I get to preach that and not my own experience. Um, my hope for this, though, is that this sermon would be intensely practical, because um, if you are in this room, if you are married, you know that marriage is no cakewalk, right? Um, but I believe that this word that God gives to us directly from Solomon to his son was meant to be incredibly practical. I mean, the way he writes this book, it is, it's, it's just that. Um, and I want it to be practical, but I don't want it just to be tips and tricks for a better marriage. Because if that's all you get out of this, I have failed you, and you will be struggling through the rest of your marriage, because we ultimately need good news, not just good advice for our marriage. Um, this also, as long as this is going to feel like in this sermon, because I have a lot of points here, this is merely just a taste, I think, of the depth and the riches, richness that God has for your marriage in his book. And so um, if you haven't read your Bible, if you have not read this book of Proverbs before, there is an immense depth of riches in there that I want you to take advantage of. Um, my hope is that this would be encouraging and edifying to your, body, to your, to your marriage, to your life. Because I recognize that in this room, there are marriages that are struggling. There are marriages that are as great as they have ever been in their, in their existence. Um, but either way, we still need the good news of Jesus Christ in our marriage. And so um, wherever you find yourself coming in here, know that, um, that wisdom is, is considered Jesus, Jesus personified, or wisdom is Jesus, if that makes sense. Um, the personification of wisdom is Jesus. And so to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to receive his wisdom. And that's my hope for us this morning. Now, you might have guessed that this is primarily going to be aimed at uh, married couples. But that said, um, I actually believe that the singles in this room or uh, people that are not yet married might have the most to gain from listening to a sermon like this. And the reason is, is that um, I think that you get, in, in any other area of our life, when we receive wisdom about something before we encounter the thing that we got wisdom about, we walk into that scenario knowing something that we didn't, maybe didn't know before, right? 
Uh, I like to think of it as, you know, they say uh, sometimes you build an airplane as you're flying it, right? So you, you're already in the air and you're trying to build this airplane. That's possible and you totally can do that. But I believe that the better way to fly an airplane is to build it on the ground and learn it and understand it before it actually gets into the air. And so um, if you're not yet married, I believe there's a tremendous amount of wisdom that you can gain now so that you don't have to learn it as you're trying to fly the airplane later on in life. So um, if you're single, I want to ask you to, to consider this as, you, as we walk through this, um, this sermon. What can I gain now that will help me honor God in a marriage later, right? What can you learn now that will help you in the future? Um, if you're married, I think we should be asking the question, what wisdom from God can help me honor him and find joy in my marriage right now? And then there's another group of people that I think that I want to speak to, and that is either uh, widowed or divorced, or so another category that may not be single or married. And I want to ask you to think about how can my experience and God's wisdom be an encouragement and a blessing to others? There's a tremendous amount of, of wisdom that God has for us, but your experience does matter, even as a, as if, you're, if you're divorced or if you're widowed, and there are people in this room that need that um, encouragement, and you're going to need the encouragement of those who might be married as well. So I want you to grab your Bibles. If you have them, there will be passages on the screen, but go ahead and grab a Bible in front of you and, and go ahead and turn to Proverbs. Um, I want to tell, just kind of tell you how we can make sense of this book. If you're not familiar with Proverbs, Proverbs is not written linearly. Um, it's almost like these heaps of information that are all like synthesized into one verse. And so um, the way Solomon writes this, there's like one passage in this book that might pertain to wisdom or marriage or whatever we're going to be looking at, but it's a synthesized version of a whole lot of other information. So we're going to be kind of all over this book this morning. If you were here a few weeks ago, Jimmy mentioned that, that Proverbs is a book of principles, not necessarily or not specifically promises. And so it's helpful for us to look at what this book is saying um, and, and not to come at it as, hey, this is a promise from God that this is going to happen, right? So we know the, the Proverbs actually says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think many of us know that's not a promise. It's not a promise that if you train up a child that they won't leave from that path in the future. So these are principles based in godly wisdom, but not necessarily promises. And then the last, last thing I mentioned earlier is just the context. We need to look at this book from the context of which it's written, which is Solomon writing a book to his son. And so there's going to be a perspective here that, that we're going to have to make sense of as we get into it. But if you've opened your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. And this will be kind of an umbrella verse that we spend our time in. Proverbs 18, verse 32 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, I'm grateful for just the opportunity that you have given for us to dive into your word, to, um, to find the wisdom coming directly from your mouth for our marriages. And God, I just pray that this morning as you, you use me, that you speak through me, through your Holy Spirit, I pray, Father, that your words of wisdom would ring true, um, that I would be able to step aside um, and not become any kind of focal point for this sermon, Father, but that we would be here to receive your words of wisdom, um, to see the truth that you have for us. 
God, I want to lift up my brother Brian and just the, um, the opportunity that he has had to take some time off. I just pray that we as a church body would just be in prayer for him, that you would be protecting him, that you would be building him up and strengthening him and giving him good rest. Um, I'm grateful for the work that you've called him here to at our, at our church. Um, but Father, I just pray that you would be building him up as he's taken some, uh, some time away from the pulpit and that our people would just be, would rejoice and be refreshed when he comes back um, refreshed as well. I pray, Father, that um, speaking about marriage this morning would um, do more than just go in one ear and out the other, but that our lives would be transformed, that our marriages in this church in particular um, would reflect the glory of God, and that we as people would look more and more like Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. All right. If you're a note taker, um, my first point is God's design for marriage. I think we need to start with, with what God lays out as a design for marriage, because Right off the bat, in that passage in Proverbs, we find that um, he says, he who finds a wife, I think the implication is that, A, not everybody will find a wife, and that's okay, but there's also an implication that God loves marriage, that this is, an, um, this is something that God has designed, and so I want us to see that. If you turn within your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 24. I don't know that we'll have that up here, but... Um, in Genesis 5, there's a passage a little bit after this one. Genesis 5 says that God created male and female, and we believe that God created male and female as equal in value and importance, but different in their roles, right? Now, if we're looking at Genesis chapter 24, the one verse previous to this, Genesis chapter 3, God creates woman out of man. The very next verse says this, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. I don't know if this strikes anybody else as crazy, but the very next thing after woman is created is this, this verse mentioning a wife. And we see that even as, as Eve was just barely created, he calls Eve Adam's wife. And I think that's a, the good place for us to start when we see that God's design for humankind was that man and wife would be one, right? That they would come together. We see that in that verse that says that two shall become one flesh. There's really no other relationship like this. When you look at any other friendship, you look at any other relationship that humankind has, the only one that looks anything like this is marriage. And it's the way God set up a man and a woman to come together. Um, when he saw that man was in the garden alone, he said, this is not a good thing. He created uh, a woman. That relationship that he created was a marriage. Um, I'm going to set up this word picture that I hope will be helpful because I'm going to reference it a couple of times later. I want you to imagine we have like a clear, a clear box or a cylinder, if you will. Um, and this would represent you or me, um, the man on one side. And then another clear box that would represent a wife. And in the top of these is like a slow trickle of water, and that slow trickle of water represents um, the Bible or God or people or information or anything else that's trickling into this that's like feeding one side or the other, right? When you get married, picture this idea of those two boxes coming together, those same trickles of information of God pouring into you, of people pouring into you, of wisdom, but now that wall that's in between there drops. Now, it doesn't drop automatically, your role or your job in your marriage is to make sure that that, that line or that, that wall in between stays low, right? So that the information pouring in from one side, let's say wisdom from God coming in there, as you two co-mingle and you become one flesh in your marriage, that there's not a wall of hostility between you. 
right? So that if God is pouring something into you, that that information seeps down and it benefits both of you in your marriage. I'm going to come back to this, but I think it's important for us to see that the idea or the design in marriage is that the two would become one flesh, that, that there would be nothing separating those two people. And if you know anything about marriage, you know that it's, it's not that hard for a wall to come up between the two of you to separate out the two of us in a marriage. Let's look now uh, at Proverbs chapter 10. This is the second point. This is the fear of the Lord. Most, most scholars, if you will, or most people believe that this passage actually is kind of the one that couches the whole book of Proverbs from Solomon. Let's read this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Um, Solomon kind of prefaces almost all of Proverbs in this way, that the fear of the Lord is the thing that is to come first. It's wise to prioritize God first, and if we look at the context of our marriage, it means that our spouse ought to come second in that list of priorities, right? When he says fear, um, a good way to explain this word fear is a profound reverence, an awe, or submission to, right? Um, it's not cowering in fear, it's, it's a different type of fear. But as individuals, it starts here with the fear of the Lord, and again, I think that this is helpful for us to look at in this context of marriage because if we get this wrong, our entire marriage will be out of whack. And I think Solomon is telling his son, it starts with the fear of the Lord first. Now, why is that important in our marriage? I think it might be obvious, but um, your spouse was not meant to be feared in the same way that God was. Your spouse wasn't meant to um, be feared or revered or in awe by you outside the context of, rever of revering God first. It doesn't say that fearing your husband is the beginning of wisdom. I definitely know that's not true. It doesn't say that the fear of your wife is the beginning of wisdom. That's also not true. Um, that both the husband and the wife in the context of marriage have to fear the Lord first. And what that means is to put him first in everything. And our spouse comes second to that. I think the reason that this is important is that we have to learn what perfect love looks like from God first. Um, our version of love makes idols out of our spouse. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own marriage, but um, if we, I think that if we don't learn what love looks like from God and apply that love to loving our wife, my wife, or our spouse, if you will, um, we have a tendency to create an idol out of our spouse, to worship them, to put, you know, to be in awe of them, to revere them, and to put them first in such a way um, that they ultimately will crumble under. It's a weight that I don't think that our spouses were designed to bear. Um, you guys might have heard these worldly proverbs, right? If mama ain't happy, nobody happy, right? Uh, happy wife, happy life, yeah. I think these assume, these assume that our happiness is tied to our ability to keep our spouse happy, specifically in those contexts, a wife. But I think it probably applies to a husband as well. Um, and I'm sure that, I mean, listen, it's great. It's great when my wife is happy. It is. I love it. But if, but if my identity is built up in keeping her happy, ultimately I'm going to fail her, and ultimately she'll be disappointed in me, and ultimately I'm going to be a wreck as a husband because of my inability to, to satisfy her and keep her happy, right? So I think that when we see this verse um, that asks us to fear the Lord first, 
It's for our own good and it's for our own benefit in our marriage that we don't place our spouse in a position of authority that's higher than God. We can't love our spouse properly until we have loved God first. And the fear of the Lord informs how we love and how we serve and how we please our spouse. Let's move on um, to number three. Be satisfied. Proverbs 5.15, I don't think that I need to do much explanation here, but I when I read this, for whatever reason, I kind of think of Solomon as like winking to his son when he reads this passage because it's, it's, not, it's not hidden very deeply, but just imagine a wink at about the end of every sentence, and this will make more sense. Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Wink. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I think Proverbs is saying that it's wise to be satisfied with your spouse and only your spouse. God gave us a cistern to drink from and to drink freely from in the confines of marriage. Now, I think he's talking about sex. I don't think he's only talking about sex, but I think it's primarily talking about that. But he's also talking about, I think it also includes emotional and spiritual satisfaction that we derive from the wife or the husband that God gives to us in the confines of a marriage. If we're talking about, um, kind of going back to that word picture, um, I think God has given us this gift that we have a wife or a husband that satisfies our needs from a physical standpoint. Um, Sex was designed by God as a way for two souls to intermingle and to become one in a way that no other human beings or no other relationship can, and by no other physical activity can do the same thing. Uh, If we're talking about like the, you know, those water tanks, right? Um, There are walls that can be built up in a marriage by, you know, by our words or our deeds or, uh, you know, missing affection, if you will. Sex is one of those things that breaks that wall down quickly. Um, it just is. In order for, the, for two souls or for two people to become one flesh, this type of physical intimacy is a gift from God to break that wall down. Um, and it requires that in our marriage. And so he says, um, more or less, if you're thirsty, drink water. Don't wait. Um, be satisfied. This is an important part of our marriages, that we actually take, take part in this and that we recognize not just the need, but the gift that God has given to us to break down walls of hostility between a man and his wife through this act. Um, I think it's important to think, kind of think about, um, well, first of all, depriving ourselves, or let's just say depriving a plant from water is kind of the equivalent of, of this. A plant needs water for life. It's a necessary part of it. I think it's also good for me to just make mention um, that pornography in the context of, of anything, really, but in, particularly in, when it comes to our relationship with our spouse, um, it's one of those things that, that hardwires, it re-hardwires or it rewires the way we think about our spouse. It takes, out the, it takes the intimacy away from that, um, and it makes it it makes it impossible. It makes it nearly impossible for us to love, to know, and to, um, 
to be a good partner to our spouse. And I just want to bring that out to say that um, our culture doesn't value that. Our culture doesn't understand or recognize the harm and the damage that rewiring, the chemical rewiring of our brains around um, being satisfied by something else or with somebody else has on the context of our marriage. The way we look at our wife and our, our husband, the way we interact with them and the way we are intimate with them, it's affected by the things that we see and we experience in the world around us. And it's un- very unfortunate that the world just doesn't value that. Um, but I just want to bring that up to say that we need, we need to make sure because of what, what the words of God have to say and the wisdom that it's trying to impart, that it's our spouse that satisfies us first and foremost in this physical way. Um, intimacy in marriage was designed to create oneness. And, and uh, contentment, contentment with our spouse is a fruit of that oneness, right? So the design behind this, beside, uh, the design behind sex or intimacy within marriage was to create oneness and to create contentment. But the lack of intimacy will eventually or ultimately lead to a loss of oneness. And the loss of oneness will eventually lead to discontentment. And eventually that does and can lead to um, either infidelity, either physical or, or just checking out. And I think it's interesting to see that that that, that pattern, if you will, applies directly to our relationship with God. The lack of intimacy with God our Father, um, community with Him, knowing Him, understanding Him, eventually or ultimately will lead to a loss of oneness with Him, which leads to discontentment with our Father, which ultimately, and I, I mean, we see it not just today in our lives, we saw it with, even with the Israelites, that that ultimately leads to idolatry, that distance from Him um, relates to, or that leads to a lack of oneness with him, leads to dissatisfaction with God, leads to worshiping a golden calf, if you will. Uh, we'll also say, outside of the confines of marriage, lock this down. Um, what we're talking about, what, what God is giving to us here is directly and only related to the confines of marriage. And I know that goes against all kinds of popular opinion in culture, um, but that's not, this, this wisdom is not meant um, to be misconstrued and just given to the world at large. This is wisdom that's given in the confines of marriage. And so um, without the covenant relationship that we get in marriage, the intimacy is, it might be satisfying, maybe even on a, on a, on a physical level, but there's nothing that it does to build oneness. And it's definitely nothing that it does to build the relationship that God has for us. We'll keep moving. Uh, number four, I call this the power of a woman. Um, look at Proverbs chapter four, and just going to look at the first part of this for right now. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, and we'll read this next part in just a second, but I'm also going to read here uh, Proverbs 31 uh, verses 10. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Of gain. Can I get an amen? Um, we got to remember, this is, this is something that's written from Solomon to his son. It's, there's not, there's not going to be a corollary passage that talks about an excellent husband, right? This whole entire book is written to him as a husband, and he's giving advice to his son about an excellent woman. But we can kind of re, uh, reverse engineer, if you will, the role of a husband given the role of the wife that he's talking about here. 
Um, this first part in the NIV, um, it says an excellent wife. In the NIV, I kind of like the translation. It, says, it calls it uh, a wife of noble character. So what Solomon's talking about when he says a wife of noble character is a woman of excellent, uh, of noble character with all the virtues that come along with, uh, with her sex, right? So this is wisdom and modesty, um, purity, good management, virtue. Um, she's an encourager, a sounding board. These are all the things um, that I think that Solomon's talking about when he says an excellent wife or a woman of noble character. And then he says that she is a crown jewel, or she is, a, um, she is the crown. So he's talking about this crown jewel, which in the ancient days we see people wearing a crown. It's this symbol that represents power, represents respect. And I think what Solomon's saying is that a wife of noble character has this power to bring strength and beauty into her marriage that she represents all of the greatest things that God has gifted women with this ability. She brings those things in as a power in her marriage to represent the very best that God has created her to be. I think we kind of see that in, um, really just in the, I mean, the way this is, is written, it's like a picture of what God has created her to be. Like I said before, it's not a promise, right? It's not a promise that your wife will bring all of these things, but it is, a, it is a principle. I think we can kind of safely say a woman after God's own heart, right? A woman of this noble character. But I say the power of a woman because I think this power is, has a two-edged, right? It's a two-edged sword. The second part of that verse that we just looked at, Proverbs 12 says, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So there's a second part of this that I think is important for us to look at. I'm going to read a few verses that I didn't put up here on this, mostly because I found them not troubling, but um, I, we have to figure out what to do with these verses as well. Proverbs, 9, or, uh, Proverbs 21, 9 says, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. He says that exact same verse in uh, chapter 25, verse 4. But then he says, Proverbs 21, 19 says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Remember that Solomon is writing this from his experience, giving his son wisdom. I don't know if you guys know this, but Solomon had 700 wives. So I think he has experience here. And he's trying to impart some wisdom and some knowledge to his son, saying, Hey, guy. Um, it, it would be better for you to live on the corner of a house or out in the desert than to live with a quarrelsome and a bickering wife. Um, I think it's a heartfelt lament from Solomon um, in the choices that he made in the marriages that he had, and this is a heartfelt warning to his son to say, avoid these things. For the sake of your marriage and for the sake of um, just of your life, avoid these things in looking for a woman in your marriage. Now, like I said before, there's the, there's the powerful side that a woman has to bring strength and beauty, but also we can see from these verses that that same power could lead to death and decay. And I think that the difference here is that it's Christ's likeness in a woman that dictates what, how that power is used. So, this is a cautionary tale, I think, speaking from Solomon to his son, a cautionary tale about the type of woman that he should look for in a marriage, one that is not quarrelsome, one that is not given to, um, 
to bickering, if you will. But I also think it's important for us to be charitable and wise in how we read this, that we not, um, A, that we don't think that he's just letting his son off easy, that this is only ragging on women and saying, you know, this is just the, the, the worst parts of having a nagging wife. I think that this entire book is directed towards Solomon's son in such a way that he wants him to be wise, not just for himself, but also in the type of woman that he looks for. And so I think there's a lot that we can gain, even as men, when we read these verses to say, um, husbands, it's our job, it's our privilege, and it's our joy that we point our wives to Jesus Christ. Because we can't take this power away. It's a God-given power that a woman possesses just by the very nature of how God created her, that she will bring that into a, into a marriage, and that it's our joy that we point her to Jesus Christ so that that reflects the way that she wields and she handles that power in the context of a marriage. Um, wives, I think... God has given you this powerful gift. Um, he has given you the ability in your marriage um, to bring strength and beauty in a way that a man on his own absolutely never could bring, could, could never even find. But I do believe that it's Christ-likeness in your life that will dictate what that looks like and how you utilize it. And then I think, you know, for those unmarried, I think the wisdom here is this is the type of woman or this is the type of man that we ought to, to look for, right? The woman for some, you know, something to aspire to and the excellence, understanding the power that God has given you to be an excellent wife and the crown of the husband. And also for a man, not just to avoid, certainly to avoid this type of woman before walking into a marriage, but also um, to look for a way to encourage a woman to utilize this power that God has, has given to her because that is our gift as well. Speaking of fighting... Point number five is fight wisely. I think the Bible actually has a ton to say, um, not just in Proverbs, but a lot to say about the way we fight. If you're married, you know this is a given. We're all, we are all going to fight. Oh, thank you. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. I chose the New Living Translation. We've been out of the ESV for most of this, but I thought the New Living Translation had a better... Um, a better way of phrasing this. It says, Avoid, avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. I think wisdom is keeping the peace. But we're not talking just about arguing things out, right? We have to argue things out in a marriage. And I'm definitely not talking about avoiding conflict. I think there's definitely problems with avoiding, uh, avoiding conflict. Well, I think what he's talking about is just a bickering and a fighting that leads nowhere. This is the type of thing that he was talking about in the previous verses, that it's better to live on the corner of a house or out in the desert than with a, um, a bickering wife. We're both sinners. We know this, right? We, both sinners walk into a marriage. Um, there's no possibility that we lead to less fighting when we, when we enter into that type of relationship, Right? But the character of contention is, I think, what he's talking about here when, it, when, it talks about, when he's talking about avoiding fights, being wise. Now, I think there's a distinction that we have to make, and I think that we have the privilege of making, and that is that fighting for your marriage is different than fighting against your spouse, right? We have every opportunity to fight with our spouse, to fight against our spouse, and to build up more of a wall between us um, in a fight like that. But we also have the ability to fight for our marriage. 
that those fights lead to lowering those walls, that a fight leads to more unity with our spouse. So if you're going to fight, um, fight towards unity. I don't know if you, if you know what this looks like, but um, there's a way that we can walk into a, a fight or a, an argument with our wife with a stated outcome of bringing more unity to our, our marriage than we had walking into it. And I think when we look at how we argue, how we, um, how we hammer things out, how we um, walk into conflict in the context of a marriage, it's important for us to look at the end goal before we, before we even get there. And the end goal is to build unity in your marriage, not to destroy it, right? If you've signed up for this covenant marriage, the last thing you want to do is to destroy it or to do irreparable harm to it. But I think that if we understand that we can have and we have the responsibility of walking into the way we fight, the way we argue, by bettering our marriage at the end of it than when we walked into it, I think that will help us. It's a subtle but I think a very intentional difference. Um, I think you can argue about maybe the way you save your money. You can argue about the way you spend your money. I think those arguments can be petty at times, but I think if the ultimate goal in the way we argue about those things is that we would bring unity to our marriage, that we're fighting for unity as opposed to fighting against it, that'll be helpful. I don't know if you guys know Nate Bargetsy. He's a comedian. Um, He has this joke about there being double-digit marriage fights. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but uh, I think early on, at least in my marriage or with, with my wife, uh, a lot of our fights came down to things like, do we buy this house? Do we spend that much money on a car? You know, what side of town do we live in? There's, there's these bigger, bigger things. Honestly, like double-digit marriage fights is like how you fold towels or like how you load the dishwasher. You know, these types of arguments that, that have no basis or no bearing really on the end of, at the end of the day, um, but those tend to be the ones that trigger some big arguments. Um, I think you can even have those types of arguments if you have the understanding that you are looking to build unity through that argument. Um, I probably would not be doing her any justice if I didn't mention, we had, a, we had an argument like this on Friday night. Um, as ridiculous as this sounds, she sent a TikTok video, and I just misinterpreted what that meant, and I said something about it, and yeah, a fight. Not that great. Definitely not important. Um, But we had the opportunity to hammer things out, to work towards a resolution that ultimately ended us in us both laughing about the video and not misinterpreting what that meant. Um, But I'll tell you, living with somebody for as long as as long as I have anyway, and maybe as long as you have, these types of fights are just going to come up. They're always going to be there. You're always going to be arguing about nonsensical things. But I think that that the wisdom that Proverbs is telling us is that. We need to look at the type of fighting that we're doing and make sure that it is um, leading towards more unity in our marriage. Proverbs 17:14 says, starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate. So stop a dispute before it breaks out. I mean, I don't think it gets any better than that. This is, I think a, a wise person just knows when to shut up. When, when, when not to argue, when not to willingly walk into a ridiculous argument that ultimately has no bearing on, on our unity as a husband and a wife. I think it was Bambi. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I think there's wisdom in that. Um, here's a little bit of just personal advice. 
This isn't directly out of Proverbs. This is a little bit of my experience, a little bit of other people's experience. Um, I think that this, some of these quarrels can be stopped by just knowing when we just need to stop, to leave it alone. But I think we also have the ability to build up our, our unity in our marriage. And I think one of those ways, to me anyway, is to avoid always, never arguments, right? The words always and never, um, always hurtful, that never ends well, those, those words. Um, the next one is compliment more than you complain. Um, I know that early on in, at least in my marriage, probably in yours, the compliments flowed very well, right? You're, you're trying to woo a spouse early on in your marriage. Those things are easy to come by. I don't know if it's just 15 years or, or if it's just life in general that the compliments stop flowing as easily. Not that they're not there to be had. It's just my laziness that leads to that, right? Um, I think we need, not to, we, need to, we need to look at this and say, um, if it's only my laziness that just stops me from complimenting my wife, that's going to ultimately lead to my demise in my marriage. Um, complaining, I think, builds up this wall in between us all of these arguments, um, I think compliments increasingly lowers that wall between us. It builds a relationship between the two of us. Next one for me uh, is just to believe the best in them. I think to believe the best in our wife, or in, in my wife, or to believe the best of our spouse um, is just to like assume that they meant better for our marriage than what maybe, maybe said or did, Right? Um, start with that premise and work backwards from that. If they meant something harmful, we, you can get to that. But I think it's helpful to believe the best in your spouse, that they have your best interest, they have my best interest at heart in whatever they do or that they say, because they're building in, in this marriage towards unity. Uh, I definitely think that this Proverbs 17, 14 says um, that it's wise to be willing to lose the argument, but to win your spouse. Uh, that could be a tough pill to swallow, but I think it's wisdom that would say, just know when not to argue. Know when to close your mouth and to, to look past whatever argument or whatever sin has arisen there um, <clears throat> for the sake of unity in your marriage. And then this last one is probably the most important, and that is to repent and to forgive often. Probably daily, maybe multiple times a day if you, if you need it like I do. This is a distinguishing mark of a Christian marriage, though. Um, I don't think that you find this in any, any marriage outside of, uh, of Christianity, because I don't think there's... I know there's not an understanding of what true forgiveness looks like. I think you can gloss over um, somebody wronging you or sins against you, but no, nobody else besides those of us who claim the power of Jesus Christ have the ability to forgive and to, to seek repentance in a way that is actually meaningful for, in the long term. Um, it's good and helpful to remember that Jesus actually died, actually died so that you don't have to kill your spouse over wronging you or harming you. Like, I mean, it may not be as bad as all that, but the fact that Jesus Christ actually did die on the cross means that nobody else has to die for you being sinned against. Because that would, I mean, justice says somebody has to pay for it, but Jesus is actually the one that did. See, God has given, forgiven us of all of our sins, and as a result, we are adopted into his body, like Jesus Christ, and as a result, we then forgive others. I mean, the Bible is filled, filled with information about 
the forgiveness that we have been afforded by Jesus Christ, and that leads us to forgiving others. So I think Christian marriages have to be filled with repentance and forgiveness on a regular basis. If you don't have a rhythm for this, like literally you could just say every night at eight o'clock, we're just going to stop and ask for forgiveness or repent of a sin, right? Like build some sort of rhythm into your life and into your marriage that will lead you to um, a regular rhythm and a habit of repentance and forgiveness. Um, Asking for forgiveness, it's not like, like touching toes in bed at night after a fight, right? Like testing to see if they're if you're forgiven. Um, this is like verbal. I, yeah, I, I think some of you know what I'm talking about. This, this type of repentance says um, verbally, forgive me for my sin and my wrong against you. Um, it, it has to be that. It has to be uh, a heartfelt, communicative way of asking for forgiveness, seeking repentance with your spouse. I'm going to read this. This is a, from a commentator that I thought was just helpful in the way we look at this. <clears throat> He says, we should be willing to forgive one another's sins or forgive another's sins against us. Covering over offenses is necessary to any relationship. It's tempting, especially in an argument, to bring up all the mistakes the other person has ever made. But love, however, keeps its mouth shut. Difficult as though that may be, as we grow in Christ, we will acquire God's ability to forget the confessed sins of their past. I think wisdom just knows, um, and wisdom will tell us when it's time to make an issue of something or to argue over something, and when just to let that go and let it pass. Not that it doesn't matter, but because we believe that Jesus Christ was the one that paid for those wrongs. All right, we're getting close. The next point uh, is seek wise counsel. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, "There is no guidance, or where there is no guidance, a people falls." But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. It's wise to seek counsel outside of your marriage. Uh, If you were here last week, Brody, I think, mentioned uh, you can have these paid friends, right? Um, A counselor or a therapist or somebody that can, uh, honestly, in a time of need, that maybe you pay or you just go and seek. In fact, we have that that ability to us through Jimmy. Jimmy um, is here a couple days a week as one of your elders and pastors to give that type of counsel. And it's wise to seek some outside counsel in your marriage sometimes. Um, but I think it's also, it's also possible right here. Like, you look, look through this room. There are other people outside of your marriage that have wisdom from Scripture that are willing to speak into your life. And I think it's not just wise. I, I think it's a necessary part of being a part of this community that we lean into that. That we seek godly mentors um, to speak into our life. To, to show us what wisdom we do not have. So, if you don't know that this is available to you, I literally, you just look around this room, find a married couple, and say, hey, can we get lunch? Can we get coffee? Can we talk? Um, as I mentioned before, um, godly wisdom doesn't mean years of experience in a marriage. It just doesn't. Um, I can be married 50 years and be the dumbest fool there is out there, right? It's, it's about God's wisdom being applied in our marriage. And so I'll just encourage you to, sp- to seek people out, seek some other people out. Married couples especially um, have wisdom to impart to younger married couples, to older married couples, to any couples that, that just need godly wisdom. Um, 
I think this also applies to uh, picking a spouse, right? Um, there's a lot to consider in picking a spouse. Sense of humor, good looks, um, you know, relationship with God, personality, worldview, all of these different things. Uh, I think it's wise to seek counsel. To make that type of decision in a vacuum, I think, is, is just a poor choice. I think it's one that, um, that doesn't take into consideration the amount of wisdom that God has given to not just us through His Word, but He's given to other people. And there is, I think, as this passage says, an abundance of counselors. In an abundance of counselors, there's safety. So I think um, learn how to reach out and to lean on the wisdom of others as well. My last point is um, a word on children. Uh, this doesn't necessarily fall strictly in the confines of, of marriage, but I did want to address it because I think um, kids are a part of a marriage more often than not, right? So Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I didn't put this up here, but I'll read these as well. Proverbs 29.17 says, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. And Proverbs 1.8 says, My son, hear your father's instruction for, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Uh, my parents heard this. I got disciplined left, right, and center as a kid. Um, but I think the reason I want to mention this is to, is to point this out, to say um, a hands-off, free-range, child-centric parenting model I think is, um, is unbiblical and just unwise based on what Proverbs is telling us. Um, I know that's an unpopular opinion, but I think, it's, I think it's an opinion that God lays out through the mouth of Solomon to his son that says that discipline is a necessary part of child rearing. But I wanted to bring this up now because um, you as a parent, as a husband and wife in the confines of marriage, just have this responsibility to decide what it looks like for you guys to raise children together and to make those decisions based on the wisdom that Scripture has for us. And I'm only referencing two or three of these, but there's plenty of wisdom to be had here. Um, but I also think that this community has a wealth of knowledge that can be shared. Um, I threw this in there uh, just for my own sake because Proverbs, or, uh, Psalms, Psalms 127.3 says that children are a gift from the Lord. Um, I'm not going to get into our story, but uh, a, a brief version of it is that we spent 10 years trying to have kids, and our, just our infertility journey ended us in, in us not having children. And so I think it's good, it, it's always been important for me to understand that when it says children are a gift from the Lord, it's a reminder that not everybody gets the same gifts, and that's totally okay. I'm totally at peace with the fact that he did not give us children. At the same time, um, he gave a lot of us children in this church. We've got like coming up, I think in this fall, we probably have close to 150 kids in this church. Um, as a community and you as parents have a responsibility to train these children and to shepherd their hearts and to point them towards the wisdom of scripture. Um, and my last thought on that is that when I talked earlier about our first priority being God, that the fear of the Lord is the first thing, and then our, our spouse comes second to that, kids fall next. Um, I've seen it unfortunately happen too often where the kids come somewhere between God and a spouse, and um, it's not the way God designed it. It's not the way he organized these relationships to be. They're a high priority, and we have a responsibility to train our children, but our first priority is to put God first in our life, our wives or our spouses second, and our kids fall underneath that. All right, we made it. Um, I want to wrap up by just saying this. I, 
I don't want, I don't want us just to have a good marriage just so that our life will be easy. I, I mean, it'd be nice, but I think that misses the point entirely. I want it because I believe that Jesus made a way that our, our marriage can reflect the glory of God. And that, to me, is far more important than an easy life. I mean, the Bible backs that up. Um, I don't want you to be married. I don't want you to look at marriage for the tax breaks or because we're lonely, we're seeking companionship, or just because it's what culture says that we, need, we should do. Um, I want us to see marriage as this gift that God has given to us for our time on earth in preparation for glory. Um, I believe that marriage is a gift that God gives to us as a means of our sanctification. Um, I also hope that, that we all understand and we can see that like all of these words of wisdom, if you will, are just lipstick on a pig. If we don't have Jesus and a relationship with her or with him in order to, um, to live our life in our marriage wisely. Because I believe that a relationship with Jesus, belief in him and a relationship with him gives us the power to live wisely and that will benefit our marriage. But if you just look at these things as a checklist, as these are like, um, you know, good practices for your marriage, ultimately I think they'll both fail and they will frustrate us. Um, I said it earlier, but marriage by design is the closest human relationship that God, um, God has given us to have with one another. And it's a means of sanctification with the purpose of making us look more like Christ. If you're not familiar with that word sanctification, sanctification is more or less this lifelong process from the point of our salvation until the point of our death where we look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. And so I don't want to encourage us to put the hard work into your marriages. Um, I, don't, I don't think that marriage has to be hard. I think a lot of marriages are hard. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it has to be hard, but I do think that it requires a lot of hard work. It just does. And we have to be willing to put the hard work into it. I think most other places in our life, in our culture right now, that hard, hard is bad, that hard equals uh, an opportunity for you to hit the eject button. Um, but I, just, I think it's worth saying that I think that marriage was designed with, with hardships in mind. I think that God disciplines his children, right? He disciplines us in our life with a purpose. And that purpose is to make us more and more like Christ, to sanctify us. And it strengthens our faith and it creates endurance there. And so, um, you know, making two become one is messy and it's going to be hard. But I think you have to look at marriage in the, in, with this in mind that it was designed for that. And it was designed that there would be hardships in order to produce endurance for us. I'm going to read this last thing. Church, I want us to be wise, and I want our marriages to be healthy and thriving because it's a reflection of the triune God and the perfect love and companionship that he possesses and that he designed us to share, and our marriages are meant to reflect for God's glory and ultimately for our joy. So, um, I hope that if you heard anything from this book, it's that God has designed marriage and, and gives us marriage as a gift to us, um, but it's going to require some hard work. It's going to require a lot of dying to ourself, um, but ultimately, I believe it's for our joy and for his ultimate glory. I want to move now into a, a time of communion, and I think it's a, an opportune time for us just to stop to, to kind of 
consider what, what God has said to us through his word, the wisdom of Solomon in, in Proverbs that he has for our marriages. And so, um, you know, communion is, it's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity to remind ourselves that the life and the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, um, that those things are real to us and that they have an impact in the way we live our marriages out. And so, um, Remember what Christ did on your behalf, the perfect life that he lived, and what, what door that has opened for us to be in communion with him and for us to apply that into our marriage. I'm going to read this uh, passage from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, until um, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I read that to say, um, if you're not a believer, this, is, this time of communion um, is not, it's not meant for you. Nobody will judge you for staying in your seat. But for those who do believe in the work and the power of Jesus Christ and your personal salvation being through him, this is an opportunity for you to come forward and to remember the work that he's done. Um, as you take a couple of minutes just to contemplate, look at and think about how, how that makes sense and how that has real application for our marriages. Let me pray. God, I'm grateful for just the words that you've given to us through Solomon. Um, this is a, a hard thing for me to, to study and to preach on just because there's um, an infinite amount of shortcomings and shortfalls in my own life that I look at and say, um, I haven't been wise in my own marriage. And God, I know I'm, I certainly can't be the only one that feels that right now, but I'm grateful that you have set the standard for what that looks like. Um, and that although we on our own have no ability to, to meet that standard or to even live a life of joy because of that standard, we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who lived perfectly on our behalf. Um, we lean into him and we receive his, his power. We receive the wisdom that you give to us because of Jesus Christ. Um, God, I pray that this would just build our, our, build our church up, encourage our marriages, encourage our relationships with our, our spouses. God, I pray that you would utilize um, the wisdom that you have imparted to us individually as couples, as um, in this congregation. And I pray, Father, that we would take the responsibility seriously of pouring into our own marriages and letting that overflow and flow into the marriages of others. I pray, Father, we would not be stingy with the wisdom that you've given to us, that we'd be able to share and impart not just life experience, but the words, the very real words that you've given to us in your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.